0: court, not cool, the court.
1: Good morning everyone, please be seated. In the matter of Daniel Brunel et al. versus his Majesty the King for the appellants, Danielle Brunel et al., Tristan Desjardins, and Michel Lebrun. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Andrew Burgess. For the intervener, Quebec Association of Defense Lawyers, Ariane Gagnon roc and Maude Cloutier. For the intervener, Montreal Laval Longueuil Defense Lawyers Association, Molly Kristalka, Alexandra Belly McKinnon, and Jeffrey Huey. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Nicholas Abran, Pauline Lachance, Benoit Larouche, and Julien Beauchamp La Liberté. For the intervener, Director of Prosecutions, Mathieu Stanton, and Eric Marcoux. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Holly Loubert and Valerie Bailey. For the intervener, Attorney General of Quebec, Francois Henault and Catherine Belanger. For the intervener, Attorney General of BC, Mika B. Rankin and Rome Carrot. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Andrew Berg. Mr. Desjardins, you have the floor. Monsieur Le Juge, Chief Justice, Justices, good morning it's much more pleasant to be here in person than by video conference. So my arguments will be in two parts. First of all, I'll deal with the first question and then the second. And in both cases, I will carefully respond to some of the respondents' arguments, including, and unfortunately, the assessment of the evidence as they propose it be done. So let's start with the first question, but before doing that, I'd like to point out that when I refer to a tab and a page, I'm talking, unless I say otherwise, I'm talking about the appellant's condensed book. So in terms of the applicable law, I think it's important to run through the applicable law quickly because in terms of what we're arguing, we're saying that the uh, Court of Appeal didn't have to uh, do what it did so uh, there's the principle of the primacy of the charter the section one in our position uh, section 24 1 rather it's our position that the accused does not have to be the direct target of a violation in order to invoke the residual category the scope of what constitutes a violation is not limited and to find otherwise in our view would run counter to the principle that the restorative provisions of the Charter or the remedial provisions have to be interpreted in a broad and liberal way based on their purpose there should be a purposive interpretation and in order to do that the if there is a violation the remedy should be effective and you'll find at tab 2 pages 3 and 4 the relevant passages from the Henry decision of this court which encapsulates what I've just argued. Mr. Desjardins, I understand that the trial judge found that there had been some violations for certain accused, for example, the right to counsel. But is it not true that he was not in a position to find that there had been violations uh, to such an extent that it was systematic and across the board and that it undermined the integrity of the justice system and under the circumstances don't you think that it takes a bit more than that to find for uh, to, to rule that there should be a stay of proceedings the first thing uh, i said was that it's important to go back over the exercise the court of appeal did in assessing the evidence because ultimately there are some clear passages from the Superior Court's decision, the trial decision and those passages show that the trial judge did find that there had been a systemic, systematic violation of rights and that's a finding of fact which the trial judge made and he mentioned it repeatedly in many paragraphs of his decision. He said that this was a systematic violation of the accused's rights an across the board violation and that's why. Uh, stay of proceedings was requested. What? Well, that's an that's part of the evidence. Well, is that on the record? Well, the investigators, uh, Sergeant Toussaint mentioned. No, but we don't know the circumstances of the other cases. Well, there's two things here. The Martel decision. Was part of the trial r- record. And I don't want to mislead anyone, but I believe it was in evidence. And then there's also the perception that the investigator had given the situation in Martel and how he reacted as a result. So, on that point, I'm of the view that the whole dynamic that allows f- for one component of this systematic violation to be in evidence. I believe there was that evidentiary basis. And when I come back to the evidence that was adduced and the findings of fact, the finding that there had been a systematic violation, so obviously, if I come back to that later in my arguments, it's because it's a, a key point which allowed the trial judge to find that the most drastic remedy was the only one available under the circumstances. Well, coming back to the Chief Justice's question mm-hmm. about the systematic nature or the, of, this, uh, of the claimed abuse. And I'd just like you to clarify your thinking on that. In your view, under the residual category, of section 24 is it your view that it's unnecessary to not to find that it was a routine practice but rather that it was a systematic or a systemic practice which makes it even more serious are you saying that it's unnecessary to have case-by-case evidence individualized evidence because if so and i wouldn't want to underestimate the scope of section 241, but it seems to me that you're not being consistent with the case okay. law, which normally requires case-by-case evidence individual evidence before there can be a finding that the police practices were across the board there may be a number of accused in a similar situation but to go from there to say that this is a systemic abuse i think there's a a step that is missing uh, before you can jump to that conclusion are you finished is your question finished yes okay there's two things here first of all in our view yes in order to find that there's been a systematic abuse uh, it has to be a widespread practice, a practice that has been adopted without too much thought. And in order to have evidence to that effect, you obviously have to look at the situation of the accused. In this case, it's our submission that, because we mustn't forget that the decision in this case, in August 2018 in Trois-Rivières, that judgment, Uh, applied to seven accused and in the decision the judge analyzed the situation of each individual accused when it came to their right to counsel and in the following paragraphs the trial judge made a number of findings including the finding that the abuse was systemic or systematic so we're not Uh, Obviously, there has to be a study of the situation of each accused in order to reach the conclusion that the abuse was across the board or systemic. But in a case like this, where there are several co-accused in order to have standing to raise an abuse of process and Section 7 of the Charter, it's our position that not all of the accused have to be the direct target of the constitutional violation in question. Well, didn't the trial judge have to ask himself whether there wasn't a less drastic remedy available? Yes, he did, and he he did have to do that. And in fact, he did do just that. And I would refer you in that regard to paragraph 210. And before we go to paragraph 210, we could go right away, but paragraph 210 of the superior court's decision we mustn't forget something here the principle that a judge is uh, presumed to know the law and to apply it correctly and the fact that a judgment should not be read the reasons should not be interpreted in a piecemeal or disjointed way so if you go to paragraph 210 of the superior court decision so in paragraph 210 just to put things in context. So in 2.10, there's a finding of an abuse of process uh, in the residual category. And in paragraph 2.10, the court goes over the 3 prong test in extenso and refers to the second stage There must be no other remedy that could address the harm. And in paragraph 212, who does the trial judge quote? Well, he quotes from uh, Tobias, a, a key passage from Tobias. And he finds that the... Abuse, there must be a chance that the abuse will continue in the future and would be shocking to the public conscience. And then in paragraph 213, the court adds that in a residual category case, the focus is on the question of whether any other remedy less drastic than a stay of proceedings would uh, be sufficient so he did ask the question he did apply the babos test and then in paragraph 213 he quotes paragraph 39 of babos which is precisely to that effect i.e and i'll read the last part the focus is on whether an alternate remedy short of a state of proceedings will be, will be, will adequately dissociate the justice system from the impugned state conduct going forward. So in this case, if you jump over, if you jump to paragraph 218, the judge uh, applies that reasoning. He says that the court is of the view that allowing the proceedings to continue in this case would send the wrong signal to police and would encourage them to continue what they've been doing despite the lessons that they've had well what uh, what were the other remedies that were considered damages uh, reduced uh, sentence he doesn't mention them he doesn't mention them at all so you're right he quotes from another decision He quotes from, he cites Babos, but that's not what the Chief Justice's question was. His question was that a trial judge, given the alleged abuse, has to consider the options. And only in the clearest of cases should a stay of proceedings be the remedy chosen. So I don't see where those other options were explicitly considered. And this is really not the same fact situation. There's no explanation here of how the other potential remedies could perhaps have allowed the justice system to adequately dissociate itself.
2: First of all, I would refer you to 221 of the judgment. And when he says that it's clear to him That the only way to put a stop to this persistent abuse and the police misconduct is the stay of proceedings. He mentions this. And what does that say? Well, it means that another remedy would not be sufficient. That's clear. As soon as he says, if I don't enter a stay of proceedings, the conduct will be perpetuated. That is exactly what was decided in Tobias where this court clearly said the stay of proceedings generally is not justified unless conduct risks being perpetuated in the future and that is exactly our situation here. I would just like to come back to one of your first remarks to the Chief Justice. Have I understood your position that the simple fact of looking at jurisprudence is enough to explain the trial judge's decision? No, also, there was what we saw with the investigator Toussaint, what he mentioned in reply to the Martel case. That was proof of the fact that he had been called to order by Justice Trudel. But was the evidence sufficient? I was slapped on the wrist earlier in the Martel case. I don't think that was his evidence. Well, I mean to say that what was said by the judge in the Martel case were in this trial case as jurisprudence but not as evidence. No, as jurisprudence but not as evidence. However, and I mentioned this to the Chief Justice, I can't tell you specifically if the Martel decision was included as evidence at trial, but I can tell you that a ruling made in another case, or rather if this case was mentioned in another case, and the investigator Involved in that case, speaks about his conduct, and let's not forget, this is Investigator Toussaint, who does make that reference to the prior case that he experienced with uh, Mr. Lebrun, who is with us today. We say that this is what was cited at the end of the day, Justice Dumas at the Superior Court of Quebec. It is Mr. Toussaint's evidence that show to us what was necessary here allows us to reach the conclusion that there was systemic abuse. To conclude on the applicable law, Of course, I will spare you an exhaustive review of what I mentioned in our factum, but I will tell you that when it comes to abuse of process, the protection of public trust in the judicial system is important. And when this doctrine was incorporated in the Charter in O'Connor, as explained by Uru Dubé in the Unanimous Decision, it is explained that the Charter is also there to protect the integrity of the justice system. And at uh, tab 3, page 6, prosecution, or rather, There is a constitutional violation to the rights of the individual and in paragraph 64, page 7 of tab 3, he mentions it is compatible with the spirit of the Charter to expand the scope when there is an undermining of the integrity of the justice system. and Justice Uredube specifically mentions section 7 to define abusive process. We're not talking about the test, just abusive process. Given the circumstances, uh, still on page 7, all the various circumstances are sometimes unpredictable when there is a vexatious proceedings she mentions the integrity of the justice system and this was a unanimous decision and in Nixon at tab 4 page 9 the justice says that in order to determine what types of violation is a abusive process under the residual category and in 34 of Nixon he says we have to remember the common law process that has to do with the abusive process doctrine, and he says it has to be an injury to the integrity of the justice system. Still in Nixon, page 11, tab 4, this court specified not about the applicable test, but what an abusive process is. And in paragraph 41, this court said that when the person's rights that the uh, abuse of personal rights are not determinative. And I won't come back to the test, but the test allows us to determine whether it was abusive process under section seven. But there is also, of course, the test to determine the appropriate remedy. And in this case, as was specified by this case in Babos, but read further into Nixon, Mr De Jardin. As you say so eloquently, it is true that Justice Charon says that the violation of the uh, personal right is important, but not determinative. But then there's further explanation if you turn the page of your compendium at the top of page five hundred and ninety. The pro- This does not establish the abusive process unless it is possible to show that the conduct led to a certain injury. This is quite clear. And we see what Justice Charon says to substantiate this. Conway is cited. Conway confirms this type of analysis. So, I understand what you've said, that we can't lose sight of the forest through the trees. I understand that. However, that does not change the nature of the abuse in this case, or the evidence in this case, especially under section 7. Because in this case what's important is under 10b it's a violation of a personal right and we're trying to apply this to abusive process that is systemic so we have to it is it necessary to explain how all of these violations of personal rights cases and these various cases which are not the same how these constitute a systemic, Babos-style, abusive process, and it's only the clearest of cases that makes, uh, that is applicable. Just quickly, before hearing the answer, when we look at the merits of this case, and the decision of the trial judge that there was a violation of right to counsel, that it was necessary to give the accused a right to contact counsel immediately that goes against the uh, Supreme Courts, the Appeal Courts and all relevant uh, jurisprudence it's not true that police officers are obliged to, are obligated to immediately offer up a cell phone so what the trial judge found goes against jurisprudence, and I I say so very respectfully. Do you not agree? That's another aspect, and no, I might disappoint you, but I do not agree. If you also go to another paragraph, paragraph 45 and paragraph 80 of the Superior Court's judgment, we can't put words in the trial judge's mouth that he did not say. And he never said that police officers were obligated to have a cell phone on site. He never said that. And in 45 and 80, he refers to paragraph 45, citing Taylor, and there's also the quote from Taylor that clearly says that there is no obligation on police officers, and he comes back to that in paragraph 80. And the reason why this cell phone matter came up is that the respondent brought it up and I will come back to that regarding assessment of the evidence because I think it's pertinent here. That's something that was brought up by the respondent and it was only in response to that that the trial judge mentions uh, cell phones but never says that police officers are obligated to have a cell phone on them. It is an option, but the trial judge never imposes that obligation. And uh, in response to what Justice Kasserier says, what is staggering to me is if you come back to paragraph 41, which is on uh, page 10 of the condensed book, uh, tab 10 rather, you'll see that this supports our argument. I'll start from the beginning. In the residual category, violation of the accused rights is relevant but not determinative. Of course, in most cases, and this is what I'm pleading, we are not in most cases, in the majority of cases. And if, if, if that justice didn't say, in all cases, why not? Because it is not a prerequisite. It is not an absolute pre- prerequisite. It said, in most cases, it isn't applicable unless, and here, what I'm arguing is we are not in that category of most cases. Here, there were numerous co-accused. Evidence of systemic abuse was demonstrated in the same case, and to send a clear message and to prevent the situation on March 31st, 2016. Decades after only a, a wired telephone was available, never be perpetuated again here we're in a situation where canadian society or rather in the past in strakhan there were no cell phones and police must have must do what as soon as the accused says they uh, want to speak to a lawyer and the accused, or the accused is asked and said yes, then there is duty to hold off. And what is the corollary? There must be enforcement and all circumstances must be assessed.
1: Do you agree with what uh, Justice Doyon said? Uh, No, absolutely not. Okay, that's good because the trial judge, uh, in his defense, didn't have that uh, handy when rendering his decision. But Justice Hogg, in paragraphs uh, 69 and 70, uh, quoted that uh, extensively, that the availability of a cell phone is not a requirement but it's something that should be considered. Justice Doyon said that clearly and followed those. So, what's the problem? Well, the problem is if you want to come with me to tab 10 of our condensed book, there are excerpts from the, uh, the form where the answers from the accused when asked if they wanted uh, to consult counsel. And for example, the answer, what's, what's the widespread practice? No, it's not, they don't consider, so contrary to Tremblay and the decisions of this court, this court and a number of provincial courts of appeal, including Ontario, have said It's not complicated, it's straightforward, the right to counsel. There's just three parts to 10B, so how is it that this is still a problem? For example, there's the Thompson decision, Ontario Court of Appeal. I think it's in paragraph 92 of that decision when we say that other decisions are not necessarily evidence per se but what's interesting about that decision is that the Ontario Court of Appeal found that there was systemic abuse by the Peel Police by referring to the case law where the police uh, the Peel Police had already been wrapped over the knuckles for that same abuse so we could do the same thing here with Freddie if you read Freddie it's not in our condensed book but uh, it caught my attention uh, over the last two uh, working days. If you go to Freddie at tab 12, paragraph 12 of our appeal book, So if you go to tab twelve, paragraph twelve. In paragraph nine, it says it's September 2015. And in paragraph twelve, they talk about the what the police did. And the last four lines, it says, in any event. The, appell- the, the call to counsel could not occur before the accused was brought to the police station. And that was the Quebec uh, Provincial Police's instruction, was that no calls to counsel were to be made until the accused was brought to the police station. So that's uh, an, an element. But at tab uh, 10, where you have those... Uh, questionnaires that people had to fill out the police about uh, implementing the right to counsel explain it explains why what the circumstances were why uh, a a call uh, an immediate call could not be made is that what you consider a systemic violation no my what I'm saying is it says no the person wasn't able to make a call and and all of these justifications were after the fact but at the site of the arrest uh, they asked did you evaluate the circumstances and the answer was no so we mustn't forget one thing chief justice and justices these questions these will says were prepared with a view to the hearing and that's where I think we need to be really sensitive Because seven police officers testified at the hearing of this motion in connection with the will will say statements they had prepared. And what does that show? The evidence clearly reveals a systemic violation. Well, just to round out what the Chief Justice said, Justice Doyon in Freddie, you mentioned paragraph 73 in your condensed book, But before finding that there was a systemic violation, you have to evaluate case by case and properly at law. So it would be an error of law to fail, to distinguish the two parts of 10B. It would be an error not to assess whether this practice that may have affected two or three of the accused but if it's as widespread as you say that was your term widespread Uh, so you have to examine every case to move from a routine violation to a systemic violation that's quite a leap and the case law says the accused who's calling for a stay of procedures of proceedings there's there's a link in your argument that's missing to go to go from routine to systemic violation well this decision involved the seven appellants and then it was extended to the rest but paragraphs 48 to 68 that contain an individualized assessment of the evidence and uh, If you look at the uh, The decision as a whole the findings are clear clearly the trial judge considered the question of whether the delay was reasonable Obviously that was a question the trial judge dealt with and from the very moment the accused asks to speak to a lawyer, the burden for justifying the delay is on the prosecution. And here the judge said in one paragraph, which I don't remember the number of, but he said, there is no evidence to that effect. No evidence was adduced on that point. Well, the, the right to counsel was exercised in, in most cases. Do we agree on that? Yes, we agree and and in no case was the person arrested during the interval where they hadn't been able to consult counsel yet is that right well one of the appellants testified no but the police did the police try to Collect any evidence uh, or from elicit any answers from the accused in the time between their arrest and their exercise of their right to counsel because that's important. That would be direct evidence. Uh, so ultimately, the basis of your argument is that there are these questionnaires, these will says. And in some cases, it was felt that it was inappropriate to allow the accused to exercise their right to counsel immediately. And on the basis of that, you say it's a systemic violation. Yes, we have that evidence. We also have the answers provided by a number of police officers, which are clear. They never say that it was an instruction, but it's clearly that they were under instructions not to allow the right to be exercised immediately. And the appellants most of them experienced a violation of 10b in the sense that the delay was unreasonable and the investigator in charge uh, wanted things done a certain way and the law is clear and for 40 years now the Supreme Court of Canada has defined the parameters of the exercise of 10b so you certainly can't plead ignorance and that's why the trial judge was so exasperated by the situation. And unless you have any other questions on that point, I'd like to delve into the evidence a bit. I know that my time is running short, but what I submit is that at paragraphs 37 to 51 of the respondent's factum, they're proposing their own assessment of the evidence. They say that the evidence does not establish the the disdain for the law that the trial judge found but the respondents proposal in my view is not consistent with the evidence that was adduced at trial and I would invite you to turn to paragraph 38 of the respondents uh, of the respondents factum and there's a table at paragraph 38 of their factum and this is their attempt to show that there was no systemic violation so that table completely disregards much of the evidence obviously i'm aware that i'm not here to argue the evidence but i'll just give you one example one example that i'd like to bring to your attention and i did this randomly and it's the first appellant if you look at the table the What does the respondent say? This table is an attempt to demonstrate that there was no systemic violation. So look what it says. Bruno Allard, he went to the police station himself after being phoned by Sergeant Briand. And then the next uh, column, the third column, right to counsel at the site of the arrest. Not applicable, but he was transferred to the Shawinigan police station To avoid a a backlog. So if you go to tab 10 of our condensed book, pages 34 to 36, you didn't come to Ottawa by train to argue the facts, I assume. No, but stay with me here. I'm trying to. Good. So, on pages 34 to 36, this has to do with Bruno Allard, it shows that he attended the police station himself on his own initiative at seven forty-three, 7.45 a.m. He was arrested, and he said he'd like to call a legal aid lawyer. And for police officers, that's pretty much the easiest thing uh, because they have a 1-800 number. So, he wanted to... Uh, duty counsel and uh, basically they said okay the right to counsel is inapplicable instead of allowing him to contact a lawyer at the first reasonable opportunity because he was at the Trois-Rivières police station he went there himself of his own volition and the police at question four of the form said they say he was instructed to go to the Shawinigan police officer. So they they brought him in a patrol car to Shewinigan, even though he was at the police station in Trois-Rivières. They drove him all the way, they drove him 30 minutes away. I know that's not in the evidence, but okay, let's just accept your working theory that these violations were varied from one accused to another. So let's just accept that. Some were serious, some were less serious. You said earlier, that in some cases there was no violation. So given the ultimate remedy that your clients have sought, are you saying that the trial judge didn't have to, in each case, consider alternate remedies? For example, in Brandamour, where the situation was Uh, let me just first say, more serious, the judge still went to the trouble of considering proposed alternatives and going through them one by one. And in this case, the trial judge, and I say this with all due respect, he could have considered other options in each individual case in order to repair the damage done by the abuse. But he didn't do that. Instead, he said... Okay, let's assume that the three Babos, the parts of the Babos test were done, and then that's it, stay of proceedings. I think the justice system has a duty to use that remedy, the ultimate remedy, in a stingy way, and that wasn't done here. Were any other remedies suggested to the trial judge? Well, I feel like we've already had this exchange justice no not at all because you're talking about differentiating between the situations of each appellant and i say fine let's do that but where's the, uh, ver- the 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 variable or the contextualized analysis of the appropriate remedy for each case uh well he did that in paragraphs 210 221 he was exasperated by the fact situation The trial judge clearly said that the only way to avoid a recurrence is by ordering a stay. Otherwise, any other remedy would not suffice. Does a trial judge necessarily, and we see this often in this type of situation, does the trial judge have to explicitly spell out every step of their analysis, because a judgment is just an imperfect expression. Well, I think when it comes to alternate remedies, potential alternate remedies, I think the trial judge does have a duty to consider them given the gravity of the ultimate remedy. I think the trial judge has a duty to explain to the public why. Uh, Reduced sentence or damages or reprimands to the police. There are all kinds of other things where that could protect the integrity of the justice system.
2: We only get to Babos at the end of the line. When it comes to applying the Babos test, the trial judge also takes the trouble at the bottom of uh, page 115 the uh, quote from Babos and this relates to a situation where there is a systemic violation observed by the courts and in this case it can be more difficult for courts and I'll come back to what this court said in Babos it can be more difficult for the court to uh, settle on a remedy that is less drastic than the state of proceedings. The violations suffered by the accused, and to borrow your expression, was variable. but here there is a systemic violation it's a whole web within this one case there is widespread abuse even though sometimes the time frame was longer or shorter and i've given you reasons why the time frame was unreasonable this is a situation of a violation Therefore, in the circumstances in light of the applicable law under residual category, we say that the trial judge did apply BABOS and found that a stay of proceedings was uh, justified, was the only possible remedy given the circumstances. And on systemic violation, I won't come back to those uh, quotations, even though I did come to court by car today, but I will tell you that at tab 11 of our condensed book, there are quotes from five of the ten police officers, which very clearly do demonstrate systemic violation. And what I find to be notable is We could take the example of Brandamour or Bellucci, where there was physical violence against the accused. Those are extremely glaring examples that do not have to do with the fairness of trial, but they are an obvious case. And here is also an obvious case. The problematic situation has been repeating itself like a leaky sink. We can look back decades in the past and clearly the message that was sent and the judge said so is not getting through. And also the senior investigator In this case, three months before was called to order on this point. Justice Kasser was saying uh, this is an atomic bomb. It's the absolute remedy. The stay of proceedings is the last resort. And you all know the rules. But here, To talk about systemic violation, when we talk about the different situations of each accused, we see that there is variation from one case to the next. Some said they didn't want to speak to counsel, some said they would speak to counsel later. Uh, Is it really true that there is systemic violation here? I personally have difficulty understanding that there was any violation whatsoever. the findings of fact and I won't take long on this but the trial judge's findings of fact called for deference unless if they were obviously and unre- uh, obviously unreasonable we see at tabs 10, 11 and 12 that we say that the evaluation of evidence by the trial judge regarding a systemic violation, the existence of systemic violation, is in no way indicative of palpable and overriding error. We have to look to Babos for the applicable test, and I forget the paragraph number, but Moldaver for the majority in Babos said I do not agree with the trial judge's decision that there was a contamination in the police testimony but this must be maintained and the court will not intervene on that point but here we have the same situation it's not exactly the same thing and I say this knowing that you may correct me the judge explains that her finding is based on errors in the analysis. Paragraph 73 and so on. Here we're not uh, we're not free from any criticism. This has to be addressed, and it is necessary to explain. The Superior Court, the judge believed that perhaps the two components of right to counsel have been confused. So here we are not arguing the facts or criticizing the facts. The first thing that is notable here is that at the bottom of paragraph 62 you have something that I consider to be obiter where the judge, I respectfully submit, uh, was not cautious and she concluded that errors had been committed, but this is in the context of obiter regarding assessment of the evidence and the way in which Justice Dumas applied the law. In our submission, this can be problematic, but independent of that, what I would argue is that these errors which were indicated in the obiter are not actually errors. The um, Judge Dumas never inversed the rules. What he said was rather that when an appellant wishes to exercise their right to counsel, they must answer yes. But what else do they have to say? They have to say now I want to speak to my counsel here on site and what's said by the police as you'll see in the condensed book yes as soon as the accused says yes we take them to the police station so that is a reverse onus and we think that this is completely different from what Mr.. what judge rather Juma said that police officers I had to facilitate uh, facilitate the exercise of this right. So that aspect is problematic. And when it comes to uh, the need for having a phone, it was said that Judge Dumas was too onerous by uh, saying that police officers should be obligated to carry a cell phone. And I've already explained to you that he said that this was not something this was not an obligation. I think it's important to put ourselves in the place of the trial judge. Of course, it is difficult for me to do so, but if you go to tab 12 of the condensed book, I submit that the superior court said that stay of proceedings was the only was the only remedy when the abuse was persistent. So this is justified, because it is persistent. And at page 92 of tab 12, the judge looks at this in a very uh, descriptive way, and he says, at page 92, what's problematic Mr. LaRouche says, what will happen next time? The answer is, I don't know. i have to speak to Mr. Toussaint's superior. But where is the buck going to stop? It seems to me that police uh, conduct will have to change. Question. So talking about systemic violation. Uh, Is this only in your case or is this across all of Quebec? Perhaps I misunderstood your question, but yes, in our case. So this violation is systemic within your case. It might not be systemic across other arrests elsewhere in Quebec. No, I would say no, because systemic In principle it's quite widespread. This is a finding of fact, you have a systemic violation within the same case. Also at uh, paragraph 12 of Freddie, there was systemic violation. That's an analogous situation. The accused is told go to the police station. If you look at Tremblay, it's the same situation. You have proof that there is systemic violation. I don't want to use up all of your time to nitpick on that, on the first component, but I'm not sure if you want to speak to the second uh, component. You have about four minutes remaining. Yes, just to conclude, regarding systemic violation, I would like to draw your attention to tab 12, page 114. And it said that the respondent said that the accused that the accused uh, the facilitation of their right to counsel was uh, planned and that it would happen at the police station. The judge says yes but the reasonable opportunity under the Charter that was planned by Officer Toussaint was to set up a room 35 people, 35 phones, 35 rooms, and that is not at all in keeping with the applicable law. This does not send a clear message to the police off to the police to stop this practice and noticing that the Superior Court did not deem this practice reasonable The uh, cell phone argument comes up that each, uh, in tab 12, so Respondents' Counsel says, so I'm understanding that the 30 rooms with the 30 telephones in each um, police station is important and there should have been a cell phone per team. But what did the judge say? I will not obligate you to carry the cell phone. It's the respondent who brought up the cell phone. And we would have a hard time pinning that on the trial judge. The trial judge did not make that remark. And on that I will jump to the second uh, ground for appeal. So what we're mainly talking about is the way the practice was carried out. If we look at Wexler from this court, if we look at Barton, and here is a citation, a quotation at tab
1: 14. The prosecution can't take a position that's inconsistent with their position at trial. So in any case, the rule is where the prosecution appeals an acquittal that implies that the Crown didn't get what they wanted. In other words, they didn't actively seek the result. In this case, the Crown actively sought the result. They actively said to the trial judge, we suggest, we would encourage you as officers of the court who have a quasi-judicial role to play, that's something. The prosecution said the respondent in this case said we suggest that you apply the same decision without waiving our right to appeal so without waiving our right to appeal but in doing so the respondent can't now claim because that's what they're saying in their factum they're saying they didn't encourage Justice Dumas to stay the proceedings in all groups that's just clearly wrong. It's clear that they said, the prosecution said to the trial judge that there would there would be a, a stay of proceedings and that could apply to the other groups. You can't then turn around and fault the trial judge for doing the very thing that you encouraged him to do. So the Court of Appeal couldn't just ignore that. They should have rejected the Crown's position well, it, wasn't it a compromise? Wasn't it just a practical, uh, pragmatic decision by the Crown to say, okay, well, the state will apply to the others? But it, as opposed to uh, an, an indication that they were going to waive any rights. No, B- but what we're saying, the only thing we're faulting here is that the government on appeal fault the trial judge for not analyzing the situation of each and every accused in groups 2, 3, and 4 because the trial judge couldn't even do that at any rate. There was no evidence uh, on the basis of which to do that. So could the Crown appeal? Well, they said they didn't, they weren't waiving their right to appeal, but they could have appealed by arguing that when it comes to the question of the need to have a cell phone available, that's one thing they could have raised as a ground, but they certainly couldn't raise as a ground that the trial judge didn't, uh, did something, which was actually what they encouraged the trial judge to do. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. Mr. Burgess.
3: Uh,
4: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Good morning, Justices. Uh, The CLA's position... Uh, is that this court should not categorically foreclose trial courts from framing mass charter breaching contact conduct as a global abusive process under the residual category and my submissions today are going to be focused on the practical considerations that arise in large group prosecutions such as this one which are often referred to as project cases and specifically on the practical need for judges to have the ability to frame issues of substantial overlap as group issues in these project cases so that they're amenable to litigation by a small number of lead counsel. Project cases are a major source of delay in Ontario courts and they consume a disproportionate amount of court resources. They raise a host of unique practical challenges. It may be
5: because there's a great multiplicity of sometimes dubious charter applications.
4: Certainly I'm I'm not defending every charter application that's brought in every case, but what my submission is, is that all participants in the justice system of Ontario, this is case management judges, crowns, and defense counsel who habitually litigate these project cases, have developed sort of a practice of trying to frame issues of substantial overlap as group issues and trying to have lead counsel appointed to litigate group issues. So that that is the practice. And the case management judges who deal with these cases, who are assigned these cases in Ontario are the most experienced criminal jurists. Uh, And so my submission today is focused on uh, urging this court not to create any sort of categorical rule which could potentially tie the hands of these experienced jurists when they're trying to craft practical solutions in these difficult cases. One of the practical considerations uh, that makes these cases so difficult and and really necessitates lead counsel being appointed to litigate group issues is the volume of disclosure which has become almost absurd. In in the Stewart decision, which is cited in my factum, the court notes that in that case, a project case, initial disclosure filled 110 bankers boxes at 2,500 pages per box. And so the, the necessity in cases like that, where you have 20, 30, 40 accused of being able to have lead counsel litigate group issues is in my submission clear, because if you had to have 40 lawyers familiarizing themselves with 110 bankers boxes of disclosure to all bring slightly different complex Garofoli applications for example uh, it would just grind these prosecutions to a halt and the number one thing that has the ability to frustrate the efficient litigation of these project cases are rigid applications rigid application of standing rules. Standing rules which are created, which have been created in the context of ordinary prosecutions, uh, but which do not always fit so easily in the context of these large project cases. Where if, if case management judges need to have the ability uh, to craft creative procedures, for lack of a better word, whether that be the use of declaratory remedies or whether that be, for example, the use of the abuse of process framework uh, to litigate mass charter breaching conduct in an appropriate case. I'm certainly not suggesting that this framework would be appropriate in every case where mass charter breaching conduct is alleged, but I would urge this court not to create a categorical rule for closing this approach. In these prosecutions, many of the considerations at play are also not gonna be ascertainable to appellate courts on the face of the record. This can include the reality of legal aid funding models. Uh, This can include 11B considerations, which don't appear on the face of the record. Uh, And this can include a host of other considerations which might not appear on the face of the record in a particular case. The procedures chosen, of course, must respect Charter and other fundamental rights, but where they do, it is the CLA's submission that deference should be afforded to these difficult choices, and appellate courts should be wary of second-guessing trial and case management judges who have substantial experience in managing these difficult cases. I see that my time is up, so subject to any questions, uh,
0: those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Maître Ariane gagnon Roc.
1: Ariane gagnon Rock, Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. I'd like to take this opportunity to point out, as other interveners have in their factums, that this appeal gives you the opportunity to draw the fundamental distinction between an abru- abusive process in the residual category and a stay of proceedings. That's what mm-hmm. this appeal presents as an opportunity. It won't surprise you to say that a stay is a remedy that may, but it is not necessary. Not necessarily, it may be the remedy, but it's not the necessary one, and it's uh, to be used in cases that would undermine the integrity of the justice system. So the focus is on that, and that. Uh, is uh, why we conclude that it's unnecessary to do an individualized evaluation of the evidence uh, because it's more about the integrity of the justice system than the individual case. And when there's an alleged abusive process, the focus with the residual category is on the integrity of the justice system rather than the interests of the individual accused. That doesn't mean that an individualized assessment can never be done. And as I said at the outset, we need to distinguish the violation from the remedy. So an individualized analysis should be done at the remedy stage when the court has found that there was an abusive process already. At that point, the court will have to tailor the remedy to the gravity of the violation. This can be done when the court is dealing with the second part of the Babos test, i.e. if there's no other remedy available that would address the violation adequately. Coming back to the questions you asked during the appellant's arguments, the question was whether the remedy could vary from one accused to another in other words there could be different remedies that would do an adequate job of repairing the damage done to the justice system's integrity so it might be possible it won't always be possible but it might be possible to fashion separate remedies for individual cases But imagine that my friends, uh, my colleagues, uh, and if three of us were accused of a criminal offense, and if the prosecution dealt with accused number one, and found that there was an abusive process, and uh, that there were charges laid, and even if the prosecution felt it was inappropriate to lay charges against one person, but they decided to lay charges against the other two co-accused, myself being one of them. I think myself I would be able to raise the abusive process in my co-accused case or the or the, in the case of the person who wasn't accused because the prosecution could be dealt unfairly Uh, could uh, counsel that's not an example of a systemic abuse what you're describing is that systemic no not at all okay go ahead no I'm not trying to argue that it's systemic But when there are multiple accused arguing a breach of Section 7, uh, so my argument is about what the, uh, at the remedial stage, what I'm saying is, in our view, there's no need to be a direct target of the breach in order to argue that we're part of the residual category. Uh, Yes? Oh, I thought Justice Wagner had a question. No. That's fine, go ahead. You have 15 seconds left. Okay, I'll, I'll wrap up quickly. It doesn't mean that we will, the, the co-accused will necessarily get a stay. The court has to assess whether a lesser remedy would fix the problem. So that's where the remedy is individualized. Okay, I have to interrupt you now to say that your time is up. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Um, Molly Kristalka.
6: The second question in litigation before the court this morning gives the court the opportunity to provide concrete guidance concerning the binding effects of undertakings by the crown. This morning, I will address first why it would be appropriate for the court to provide this guidance in this case. And secondly, what the practical effects of our proposed framework would be on the justice system and on the relationship between the accused and the Crown. Starting with, with, with why this would be appropriate, um, this, this case is unique in the sense that the animating principles are uncontested. We all agree that the Crown is bound by its undertakings and we all agree that um, these, these undertakings have, have, have important consequences for the other parties the litigation, the accused, as well as for the court the binding effect of Crown undertakings. Um, it enables the defense and the Crown to rely on each other's statements. It promotes certainty and predictability, and it allows for an efficient use of court resources. Yet, we also all agree that this cannot be an absolute rule. There will be cases where the Crown will need to resile from a position or an undertaking that it's previously taken. The issue that we have is that with these principles that we all re- all recognize and accept, practically how do we reconcile them what happens in practice when the crown is in a position where it needs to resile from an undertaking that it's previously made that is the question we believe is raised by the second question in in, in litigation and it's to that question that we propose a normative framework practically that will indicate to the parties what to do in such a situation so Our our proposed framework, in brief, provides that the Crown is bound by its undertakings as a general rule, and exceptionally, the Crown can be authorized by the court to resile from an undertaking where it establishes either one, that doing so would not cause any harm or prejudice to the accused, or two, where the crown establishes the existence of a significant change of circumstances that requires a a, 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 a resiling of of the position. Now, when I refer to undertaking, what we're referring to here is any kind of, um, any kind of affirmative action, any kind of decision, or statement or position by the Crown by which it does or does not do something that it has the ability to do or not do. So we're not focusing on prosecutorial discretion, we're really looking at um, tactics and, and decisions before the court that fall under, under the court's power to, to, to control its own processes. And the, the importance of this framework is that it will, it will allow the parties to govern themselves accordingly and it will promote the rule of law. So moving to the second aspect of my submissions, practically what this will do, our framework, is it will allow both the defense and the public to rely on the undertakings made by the Crown. People will know that when the Crown takes a given position, for example, that in a charter motion under Section 8, the Crown does not contest that there was indeed a search. The public will be able to rely on that. The Crown, will, the, the, the defense will be able to rely on that. The motion can be scheduled and evidence and arguments can be, can be planned on the basis of that undertaking. Court time can be allocated accordingly. By the same token, The the requirements of this framework will incentivize the Crown to make undertakings prudently, diligently, and with careful consideration. This is consistent both with the Crown's unique role and obligations, as well as with the maintenance of the rule of law more generally. The Crown will also be motivated to take proactive measures where issues do arise with prior undertakings, since the taking of those proactive measures could allow the Crown, for example, to demonstrate that its change of position will not cause any prejudice to the accused.
5: One has, now, to, be, one has to be careful uh, when you say an undertaking because in the course of discussion, which always occurs between Crown and Defence counsel. Crown counsel may well say something like, I anticipate proceeding in the following manner. And uh, that is the view at the time. If you are are defense counsel and you want to rely on that, in a a sense, you you, you want to rely on it because otherwise, maybe you can save a lot of time. You don't have to prepare for something. Isn't it incumbent on defense counsel to nail it down and not simply say, well, we had a chat in the corridor last week, and the Crown said, well, they thought they were going to proceed in a certain way. Because otherwise, uh, I mean, the Crown won't talk to the defence at all.
6: I see my time has expired. Can I can I respond to the question?
5: Yes, please.
0: Go ahead.
6: Um That's that's an excellent question, Mr. Justice Rowe, and and I agree completely. One of the the goals of our framework is, is, is to do just that, to encourage clear and consistent communication between the parties. So when the Crown makes that kind of statement to say, I plan to proceed as follows, if the defense takes that as an undertaking, the best practice for them is to respond, ideally in writing, ideally by email, and say, we understand that you will be proceeding in X, Y, Z manner, and we will, we will plan accordingly and govern ourselves accordingly. Otherwise, you can find yourself in a situation where the Crown may think they've not undertaken, and the Defence may think they have. And that, that is not consistent with maintaining confidence between attorneys nor with the proper use of court resources.
0: Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you.
2: The Court will take its morning break for 15 minutes.
0: La cour, the court. See where you was that
2: Please be seated, Mr. Abrand. Chief Justice, Justices, good day. The approach proposed by the appellants, just like that of the trial judge, omits an important point that criminal proceedings must be looked into comprehensively. Here it is a matter of a gang crime and drug trafficking and stay of proceedings is the most drastic remedy. The appellants suggest to extend standing to all accused and to grant the same remedy to all accused. We say this is not in accordance with the law, and I will explain in three points. Then, Mr. Lachance will deal with the second point. Firstly, 24-1 allows, or rather, deals with violation of personal rights, and in order to, for this uh, to be available to a person, their own personal rights must have been violated. Also, the remedy under 24-1, for there to be a stay of proceedings, or rather a stay of proceedings does not accomplish what 24-1 sets out to accomplish. Also, I will speak to what Justice Dumas mm-hmm. said. Mr. Abran, when you say that the remedies, that the uh, remedies need to be based on the individual case, Isn't it true that an individual can complain about a very serious violation that can also be shared by other individuals in society and that that first individual can also ask for a remedy that can also be to the benefit of those other individuals in the same situation if the court decides that there is a serious systemic violation of the first individual's rights but that can also impact the other's rights? Two things. This reminds me of Brin d'amour, where the situation was so egregious that all accused, it can even be a violation against the system of justice. Yes, and there has to be an impact on the personal rights of the individuals. Here, we have the whole problem that we are seized with today. What's being alleged is that there's a violation of a personal right that was perpetuated in several different cases in the same case. A remedy for abusive process is sought and it would apply to everyone whether or not their personal right was violated and in a case such as this one I would say I would answer no to your question if this case resembled Brandon Moore, I would answer yes here we do not have the uh, severeness of violation and I will give you more context So I'll come back to paragraph 72 and 75, I'll give you a moment. Are you talking about the appellant's factum? Yes, at page 72 and 75. I won't read it, I will summarize it, but it says that a person does not have to have been the target of personal rights violations to be able to, for 24-1 of the Charter to be available to them. The violations must be uh, severe enough to undermine the justice system. If the whole justice system is undermined or if there's a situation such as the one in Brenda Moore, perhaps that this could apply. But they add in seven, paragraph 75 they mention everyone whose rights were violated under section 7. So for us, when an accused does not have a rights violation under 10b or under section 8, and then has a violation under Section 7, but there was no evidence and the right to counsel was not uh, delayed for days and that that individual was able to have access to counsel. We say that, unfortunately, this is not applicable to this case. And by definition, it is possible for not all individuals to have suffered even if the violation was systemic. And I'm not saying whether or not the violation was systemic in this case. But it is necessary to establish that in each of the cases there was violation of rights here's our position. When it comes to uh, infringement of a personal right, that should be the case. And I'll take the example of Riley, which was in 2020 at this court. It was in regards to the Alberta Crown Project, which was put in place in the early 2010s in Alberta. And it led to a whole series of violations of uh, detention exceeding 24 hours. The question is, does that systemic violation allow Riley to have a stay of proceedings? Yes, that is what you determined. But what about anyone who was detained for fewer than 24 hours? I don't believe so. And here we have the same thing. According to the tests we propose here, and I'm still talking about Riley. If one of the 31 appellants had been detained for more than 24 hours, they would have right to a remedy. And if it were systemic, then that would probably be a stay of proceedings as it was in Riley. But what my colleague is arguing, that they should all have the right to a remedy, and that it be the same remedy, even though they were not all, to take the metaphor, detained more than 24 hours. Your colleague, to substantiate his position, quotes Nixon, which you also quote, and I believe your colleague is correct to say that Justice Charon's position is nuanced when it comes to the infringement of an accused's rights being important but not determinative. my question is how does that statement by the court fit into your argument? We say there's a difference between uh, relevant and not. If there's someone here who did not ask for their right to counsel well we know from the Baines decision that we know that some individuals who did not ask to uh, speak to their lawyer, and we know that from the evidence in this case, the police officer is not obligated to execute that right immediately. If we look <clears throat> if we look to Nixon, Mr. Uh, Justice Casirer, I will explain this, but first I'll make a detour and speak about the O'Connor decision. And I don't have it before me, so I won't quote it, but I will paraphrase it. In this famous O'Connor decision, Judge Dube said that when the uh, Charter-Protected Rights of Fairness of Trial are in question. She talks about when they're in question and this is important to us because talking about the residual category, whether it's uh, in O'Connor, and when we look at Nixon, once again, this is not under the same rights. It is normal in cases such as this, even if there is not a serious violation to personal rights that there can be a state of proceedings as the remedy. However, the case here is there are accused that do not have requisite interest to act Under 10B or Section 8, and so Section 7 and 11D are used, and the allegation is made that a state of proceedings is justified under the residual category. However, that is in place to protect fair trials. This is the case for uh, search warrants and for right to counsel under these two sections. What we're asking is is harm necessary? We say yes if this is the type of motion that a judge is going to rule on. And is harm necessary then if there is a threat, such as in Babas? Perhaps
1: not. But that's not the question at BAR today. In our view, the question is the intersection between personal rights that are being transformed into the residual category. Your friend talked about widespread violations. Here we see a police practice that was established it went beyond the merely routine this is his position that it goes beyond procedural fairness of this individual trial and it goes it reaches the systemic level that's his submission I don't want to distort mr. Desjardins' argument but It seems to me that these two categories, uh, the the water tightness of these two different categories is is being tested here. Yes, to some extent. And if you were to find that there was a systemic uh, violation, which we dispute, the systematic nature of the abuse could be a factor and should be a factor. When it comes to the remedy stage not before a systemic violation in our view does not trigger a right to a remedy if there has been no violation in the individual's case 24-1 is clear it says that any person who's been the victim of a violation of their rights may seek a remedy so in nixon that was clarified what what that does is it reduces the burden uh, from uh to to a preponderance of uh probabilities a balance of probabilities so in our view that's the basis of the whole thing you you've said so in edwards through uh, Al bashid Ferguson, there's a whole string of decisions from this court on 24-1, and there's always been reference to the need to show the violation of an individual's right, a personal violation, and in our case, for example, uh, in, for Mr. For uh, Shunabul Boundary or Uh, there there were the situations of each accused varied greatly and perhaps another way of broaching the question is to look at the prospective nature of the remedy which was explained very well in the decision because the question is not so much about past violations of the right to counsel the issue is that if the trial were to continue that could cause prejudice to the accused but we could also ask that uh, whether a stay of proceedings would not remedy past violations, but would prevent this practice from continuing in the future. Because that conduct is prejudicial. So it's always useful to look at whether the right to counsel was violated in a systemic way but there always has to be a link between the systemic violation and the accused. The fact that the accused, that their rights were violated. But the emphasis is always forward-looking. The When it's a state of proceedings, it's a forward-looking remedy to prevent future abuse. Well I fully agree. And. The next thing I would say is that, even if you were to grant standing to all the accused in this case, that would not obviate the need to apply the abusive process test. And I'd like to go through each step with you of the way the judge dealt with these questions in 2014 and with all due respect to the trial judge uh, i don't believe that justice dumas uh, truly and genuinely asked himself the appropriate questions and if you were to grant standing to all which i would challenge for the reasons set out in our factum but when it comes to the remedy the first step of the test is would continuing a trial in spite of the abuse cause further prejudice or or harm to the integrity of the justice system according to the respondent in this case there were some accused whose rights were not violated So that would not, in our view, do any harm to the integrity of the justice system, especially if the trial judge felt that for those who did suffer prejudice, there was a need to pass on to the second stage of the test. For those who didn't experience any violation of their rights, why should they necessarily follow in the same path as their co-accused who did? And if we get to the second stage of the test, what the trial judge didn't do, and I think Justice Kazerer raised this uh, appropriately, and I would like to add something to that, when it comes to alternative or alternate remedies, this is a case, unlike Babos, where the appellants themselves were proposing other solutions, other remedies at trial. They were asking for a stay in some cases, and the exclusion of evidence in others. And the trial judge found that there had been three violations of the nine co-accused. So why, under 10b, would the exclusion of certain statements not be an option? in, in order to deal with a systemic problem why would that why would the exclusion of their statements not be sufficient and if it's insufficient Well, I would say that Babos requires that Okay So part of the answer when it comes to the violation of the right to counsel, but there were other alleged violations and they have a the potentially cumulative effect leading to the stay of proceedings what do you have to say about the other violations well i have two things to say first of all the requirement for an endorsement on a general warrant there was no requirement for such an endorsement in this case the judge didn't do a very extensive analysis at the court of appeal so she Departed from CIMENT Independant, she distinguished that case. I would go even further and I would refer you to tab six. All of these uh, provisions have been repealed because there's no longer any requirement for an endo- endorsement, but in four hundred eighty-seven point zero three one, it says if a warrant is issued under Section 487.01.05 or 492, etc, a judge in another province may, on application, endorse the warrant if it may reasonably be expected that it is to be executed in the other province. So the requirement for an endorsement in this case stems from 487.016, which says that uh, the other provisions, relevant provisions have to be Applied And those provisions require that when a warrant is to be executed in a different territorial district, it requires an endorsement. But what I'm saying is that the requirement for an endorsement there's a specific provision applying to warrants to be executed in other provinces. So in the former section 47 sub 2 anyway that for for this reason i agree that there's no requirement for an endorsement so that was not a violation in fact and the other point is about notice of secret uh searches and then there's the question of the third parties that were not charged the others knew about the secret searches because of the the evidence in this case but the those who were not charged and were the subject of secret searches well i wouldn't go so far i think it's an error and i think that the requirement to give notice The, the people concerned did eventually get notice of the searches and enough has been done to remedy the situation for the future and the prejudice in a case like that. Well, the, the notices were eventually sent out. So the other violations, in our view, are minor. And if you don't agree with me across the board, I have to say that of the 31 accused, 11 didn't get notice of the secret searches. Six did, they found out, through unendorsed search warrants. And of those six, those six were among the 11 who didn't get notice. So if there was any violation, It really only concerns 11 out of the 31, or even just five of the 31. So the Crown has been arguing from the outset that this wasn't done at trial. Uh, The question wasn't raised of who was affected by the violations and how. Everyone was put in the same basket. And it all headed toward the most severe remedy available, the atomic bomb, to use the Chief Justice's expression, in a situation where I'm sorry, there's no precedent in any of the case law I read in preparing for this case. I've never seen a stay in a case like this where no more than a dozen people had their rights breached out of 31 well when i asked the question about the trial judge's treatment of alternate remedies he brought me to the end of the trial decision your friend mr desjardins section that paragraph 213 and uh, which deals with babos and the rule that requires determination whether there are lesser remedies available that would allow the justice system to dissociate itself sufficiently from the police conduct. And uh, at paragraph 221, the trial judge said that most of the prejudice caused would continue in the future. And he found only a stay of proceedings would be sufficient to remedy the situation. So in Mr. Desjardins' view, it's implicit that all the alternatives were ruled out. If you read between the lines, well, I don't accept that way of applying Babos for two reasons. It'll take a few minutes for me to explain but I will explain Justice Laver's reasoning in Babos. In Babos, it's important to remember that there were three violations. There was police collusion to open a trunk and change testimony. There was also a medical record and there were threats by the uh, prosecution the crown made threats and justice Labor said there was no connection between the three violations they had to be examined separately in this case there's no link between the the three alleged violations i.e. the 10b the notice of secret searches and the endorsement but if we go even further with justice Labor's analysis and babos He said, another reason why I'm analyzing them separately is because the first allegation about the medical record and uh, that these things would never get to the third stage, the first two violations. So he analyzed them separately. And it was just the threats by the Crown that were capable of leading to a stay, that warranted a stay. So in my case, in this case, I would say, that a stay was not warranted uh, for the other violations, but when it comes to 10B and the right to counsel, did the judge have to examine all the alternatives? Perhaps not, but did the trial judge have a duty because the appellants were, the the, the defense themselves suggested that some evidence, the exclusion of some evidence could suffice. So, I'm just extrapolating here. Perhaps there could have been stays ordered in the more serious, the case of the more serious violations, uh, but not in the others. Why couldn't there be a variety of remedies tailored to the situation of each accused? We don't know because the trial judge didn't think it through or didn't explain. Basically, the trial judge hid his reasoning Uh, we don't know what the trial judge was thinking in the trial judge's defense at paragraph 221 he does give a bit of an explanation he says the court is of the view that it's not just the prejudice caused by the abuse it's also the misconduct of the police that warrants a stay. So he's implying that the systemic practice would continue if he didn't use the atomic bomb remedy to repeat that expression. Anything less would not do the job in his view. Well, that's what brings me to the third part of my argument, which is, uh What justified the atomic bomb remedy here?
2: So I'll get to 10B. With all due respect, uh, 60D and uh, paragraph 60D and so forth are not opener. It said I could have simply found that there was standing But because there were uh, errors in law regarding right to counsel, I need to uh, look into this. So we disagree that there was systemic um, violation of right to counsel. And we agree with uh, Justice Uggs that the trial judge erred in law. And I will make six points but in these six points I do not aim to prove that the first reasonable opportunity to uh, call a lawyer is always immediately or always at the police station. I bring them up to and I'm not arguing that a cell phone needs to be in the uh, police car, rather I raise these points to say that the cases vary, and that the circumstances of each accused are essential. So, of my six points, the first is in regards to Strachan. In that decision, my my colleague referred to it earlier. So I agree there is systemic violation in Strachan, but. What is not said is when did that violation happen? So in Strachan at 6.20 p.m. Mr Strachan takes the phone to call his lawyer and the police officer stops him. Then after the police finish searching the apartment and the third parties are have left 40 minutes later The situation was stabilized, the police then brought the accused to the police station and offered him his rights. Strachan does not say that bringing an accused to the station is always unconstitutional, or always constitutes a violation of rights. What it says is that uh, once the situation has been stabilized by the police, um, or if the situation is stable and there is a phone available, then yes they must. the accused must be allowed to call their counsel. Also, it is specified that this is not a case like Rover. In Rover the Ontarian uh, practice was to wait until the end of the search to allow the right to counsel so that the accused did not call an accomplice, and here the accused are brought to the police station to make a call confidentially because there's a search ongoing at the house and there is no phone available. I might be corrected, but the police would say that given the circumstances, the most prudent way To facilitate uh, right to counsel was to wait so it could be done confidentially. And it looks like confidentiality was not taken into account for uh, by Judge Dumas. Then the uh, Ontario Court of Appeal ruled that to protect the confidentiality of the call an accused could be brought to the police station. And what happened in that case? There was a warranted arrest, there uh, is a search, and the accused is brought to the police station to have a confidential phone call. The Court of Appeal of Ontario said there was no violation, so in our case here, should we look at the same uh, facts and rule that there is systemic violation? Sometimes in our case, the accused had to wait 10 or 20 minutes, but the accused were brought to the station. In 2022, the Northwest Territories Court of Appeal saw a case with similar circumstances. There was no uh, phone network. So the call to counsel was made at the station, and this was deemed to be reasonable. That was the first reasonable opportunity. The police had not brought a phone. And I'd like to make a comment on confi- confidentiality. It is important. And I know that an accused can decline this right under 10B. With that said, if I were to give legal advice to a police officer, I would have a very hard time telling them, bring a cell phone and offer the accused an unconfidential phone call. The first thing that would happen afterwards would be there would be uh, motions for a violation under 10B because the call, even though it was made, was not confidential. So, were all of these cases uh, systemic violations because uh, the right to counsel was not given right away, I, have, I would like to speak to this uh, case. So this was the NANDU project, and there was significant planning that went into it before it was carried out. Regarding the right to phoning a lawyer on site, uh, what was the planning here? Because officer Toussaint said he did not issue that type of directive. So what should be done in a similar circumstance? I see that there was planning here and that's important. Two things. Firstly, we all know what Mr. Toussaint said is that you must respect the accused's rights. However, there was no plan, but he did defer to the professionalism of his officers. There was no directive, but what there was is police officers Who are presumed to know that they must facilitate the exercise of that right at the first reasonable opportunity. There was a Taylor decision that had been handed down 18 months before and the court had specified whether or not police needed to provide their personal cell phone. The court said no. And in the following paragraph, 28, the court adds, that 10b does not give the accused a right to a a cell phone in particular. So planning for a phone call on site, unless the officer was to offer a confidential or a semi a non-confidential or semi-confidential call. Well, I would say the circumstances vary. It's we don't, the officer doesn't know if there's a concealed weapon, so the police officers instead prepared the police station such that it was possible to facilitate the exercise of that right as soon as possible after having uh, brought the accused to the station. Would it have been easier to make a room in the house secure in order to provide that phone call? Well, firstly, you need a phone, but the accused's phone and all of their transactions happen by phone have all been seized. Are the police officers obligated to offer up their phone or bring along a phone? The first reasonable opportunity is tricky to plan in advance because the the officers don't know if there will be a phone on the premises or not. They don't know if a person is going to waive their confidentiality or not. If the phone call happens in a room, they will still be being monitored by the officers. But it seems they were presuming that they would, uh, that they would agree to wait, it seems that it was necessary to operationalize the exercise of the right. Yes, certainly, and the way that, and here, the way that they operationalized it was that they thought that the quickest way was to bring the accused to the station because it was more secure than on site of the arrest. In the first group Frederick Thompson lives 100 meters away from the station so isn't that more reasonable than to give him the call at the site of the arrest? Another accused uh, lived three to five minute drive at 1.4 kilometers from the station. So what's more reasonable there? These I beg your pardon, are questions that the trial judge should have ruled on, but did not rule on because he grouped all these accused together in the same basket. And to determine this, all of the notes of the planning would be necessary. because we only have extracts of it, and if the judge had included more detail, we could debate this more clearly. But that's the best argument I can give you. Were the police's uh, plans the best solution? I don't know. And in each case, was the accused rights violated? I don't believe so. And does this situation represent systemic violation, I am not convinced.
1: And on that point, if you don't have any other questions, before I turn it over to my colleague, uh, Ms. Lachance. Yes, I have a question. The Court of Appeal ordered a new trial and a new hearing of the motion. Do you have any submissions to make about the relief sought and about this court's what this court could do potentially if we were to reject the appeal? If the appeal were to be dismissed, I would ask this court, my, my submissions are the following. There's a need under the circumstances to clarify the right to counsel, a bit like Justice Hogg did, but to give flexible instructions because it has to be, it has to depend on the situation. But as something that's clearer, because I've read hundreds of decisions on Ten B in the recent weeks, and there's quite a bit of variation. My second point is I would ask if you agree with my arguments to dismiss the finding that the uh, endorsements, uh, the lack of an endorsement was a violation. It just doesn't make sense under the circumstances. And for the rest, it's our view that there has to be a new hearing. We don't want to strip the accused of their right to allege a violation and to do to argue that as they please, uh, depending on whether this court finds that there's an individual or a group standing to uh, allege an abusive process. And I agree with Justice Martin that this was not a perfect operation police operation and I I would admit that wasn't perfect in the case of each and every accused uh, but I don't agree with my friend about how serious the violations were so I think under the circumstances a new hearing is necessary but with some clear guidelines because especially on the right to counsel because uh, and also around uh, standing I would say before you go, just to piggyback on the Chief Justice's question, given your position as respondents, in your relief sought, in your factum, do we are we entitled to rule on one of the questions which logically would uh, be part of the new hearing? Would be for the new the new hearing at the superior court the, the new trial well maybe not decide but at least give some some legal guidance some clarification of the law because section 47 the, the, it, this requirement for uh, an endorsement is a thing of the past it was repealed a long time ago that provision in uh, 2009 way back then and maybe I'm not allowed to ask for this I'm thinking aloud here but a bit of guidance on that well I don't think it would be a good use of court resources to have the trial judge revisit that question but I probably would have had to cross appeal uh, on that issue uh, now that I think of it yeah that's probably as, as respondent, I, I probably should have cross-appealed on that point. If that's all, uh, I'll turn it over to my colleague now. Good morning Chief Justice, Justices, I'll be brief on the second question. The parties agreed that the judgment for Group 1 would also apply to Groups 2, 3 and 4. After discussion, the parties agreed to proceed in this fashion in order to be cost efficient in the use of court resources. And although the respondent didn't agree with the trial judge's decision, we had to recognize that the same evidence and same arguments would lead inevitably to the same result. So trying to get a different decision on the same facts would have been a waste of court resources. Obviously the respondent acknowledges the importance of respecting one's commitments to the other parties, but in this case, the respondents have been completely consistent in their positioning and it's the appellants who are trying to uh, revisit what actually happened. Uh, The appellants would have these cases Assessed uh, as a group uh, with everyone lumped together rather than individualized analysis but the evidence uh, looked like it was going to be identical for all four groups and the, The that analysis would have begun just a few days after the decision was given for group one and the same evidence was in all likelihood going to be adduced. So the evidence was complete and the appellants had won. And so there was no reason to believe that the result would be any different for the other groups. And uh, the appellants knew what the respondents would argue On standing they knew that standing was an issue that standing was in dispute and those were fully argued the agreement between the parties uh, there was it, it was not done without or entered into without any formality there were four points agreed on and that was recorded And two of those statements said that the evidence for group one would be adduced or put on the record for groups two, three and four. The fourth statement provided that it was without waiving their right to appeal. This deal was struck without renouncing or waiving anyone's right to appeal. So the decision went against the respondent and that is why we appealed the appellants could not ignore the fact that the respondent would wish to appeal because when the deal was entered into the notice of appeal and the factum on appeal had already been filed for it, for, the, for group one so the appellants knew what the respondents intentions were and they even knew what our arguments would be And the trial judge ruled knowing about this agreement and the fact that an application would be made to join the files on appeal. And so it couldn't have been any clearer. And unless you have any questions on this, I would conclude by saying that things could not have been done any clearer our position was known and it was consistent. There was no change in our position throughout the case at Bar and the appellant's arguments are not well-founded. I have the impression, even if it's clear, isn't there a contradiction or a conflict uh, underlying this agreement? In other words, I understand that there are four groups here But if it's necessary in the first group to have a specific and individualized analysis, how can the individual rights and the individual evidence of the members of group one, how can that just be transposed onto members in groups two, three, and four? I don't get that. Well, I would answer in two parts. The evidence applied to the whole group and the trial judge, well, that's your position today before us. But how does it work? How do these two things, how do you reconcile them? Well, that was the respondent's position even before the trial judge. The evidence was done for all of the accused as a group. So the evidence that was presented for group one, the will says and so on, that evidence was complete for all of the accused. It would apply to all of them in all groups. And despite the evidence that was presented, the trial judge did not do an individual analysis of each accused in group one. In fact, He found that they had all experienced a violation of their right to counsel and they were all entitled to a stay of proceedings, even though one of the accused had actually exercised their right to counsel. The trial judge didn't mention that at all or didn't analyze the fact that the one accused situation was totally different from the others. And the judge found that the violation came earlier uh, right from when Sergeant Toussaint uh, gave his uh, instruction to his officers. And so when the trial judge, as soon as he found that there had been a blanket violation of the right to counsel for all of Group 1, and all the evidence had already been adduced for all of the appellants, well, then the respondent had nothing more to bring to the table, no more evidence to adduce. And the trial judge acknowledged that himself because in paragraph 8 of his decision, he acknowledged that his decision applied to group 1 accused, but that it could also have an impact on the other accused as well. in any way the uh, the deal the the agreement did not uh, endorse the decision in my view it was just a practical decision to with a view to the efficient use of court resources that's right we didn't request a stay of proceedings we just uh, w- asked that the reasoning in for group 1 apply to the other groups too and uh, the judge said that the facts might vary but it would be harder to convince him that the law that he would arrive at any other decision at law in the other cases thank you counsel thank you mr stanton
2: good day at trial and at appeal the main issue was clearly identified the application or the enforcement of a 10b right to counsel however for standing the trial judge mistakenly erred in law and the uh, at the appeal level 10b falls under residual category To help this court, the Director of Public Prosecutions has two points. First, 10b of the Charter must apply when there is specific violation of right to counsel. And two, under the Charter, it is necessary for there to be violation of a personal right. So first, when there's a specific Charter breach, this court has told us that the specific violation is important. This court has said that 11b can be used, and that the preferred way to analyze cases uh, of double jeopardy, we can look to 11h. 10b is specific, and its objective is to ensure the fairness of trials. So, it is not necessary to uh, look to abusive process here. 10b did not need to be uh, categorized under abusive process, but if such an exercise was to be carried out, 10b is first and foremost concerned with abusive process. The appellants concede or rather, what is clear is that a 10B breach does not fall under the residual category. This type of violation does not concern a general fairness of trials. Residual abuses, as this court said, concern various and sometimes unpredictable circumstances. Here are three quick examples threats by uh, the Attorney General under BABOS fall under the residual category. Like in BABOS, when there is uh, corruption of the jury by police officers. Or, thirdly, when a correctional officer assaults uh, a handcuffed accused after having uh, admitted to being an informant. 10B, therefore, does not fit into this abuse of process category, which brings me to our second and final point. Whether to argue a violation of right to counsel under 10B or uh, under Section 7, it is necessary to demonstrate standing. A violation of a person's right is required, and the application has the burden. This governs the protections under the Charter. An individualized analysis is not a waste of time. Rather, it is uh, in keeping with the objectives of the Constitution and to come back to right to counsel. Even to take a worse example, complete systemic unjustified denial of the right to counsel, we still see that 10b offers complete and effective protection. So there again, it is not necessary to resort to abusive process in such a case. Imagine if there is a police uh, investigation with various suspects and the right to counsel is indefinitely suspended that does not have anything to do with reasons of public safety or safety of the police officers or any other exceptional circumstance. Such uh, violations should be considered under 10b and if systemic nature is demonstrated, this should come up in the remedy stage. In the most serious of cases, a state of proceedings could be granted, but only if it is demonstrated that this is one of the most obvious cases following this court's ruling in Babus. If there are no questions, that is the director's remarks. Thank you. Holly Lubert.
7: We wanted to raise a uh concern with an issue that arises in this case that some of the interveners have also um, mentioned and this is the the concept of reframing a section 10b application in a project case um, as in this case or a section 8 application or other applications as section 7 residual category abuse of process applications while we're highly supportive of administrative efficiency and group applications we submit that it is not good criminal law policy to open the door to reframing these types of group charter applications as Section 7 residual category cases. And we have four reasons why. Our first is that it's antithetical to the underlying purpose of the doctrine. The abuse of process doctrine is, is really about addressing exceptional circumstances that apply when the court's process is abused. Its it's driving force is not to facilitate group litigation for the purposes of sort of administrative efficiency. So ultimately, it's not compatible with the purposive approach to the interpretation of the doctrine. The second, and this is a point that I'm picking up on um, that my friend just spoke about, is this court has already explained that challenges should not be brought under the broader Section seven guarantee if that claim can be resolved under a specific enumerated charter writer guarantee.
8: What about what What uh, do you say, though? I mean, in this case, we have both an allegation of a systemic practice, a directive, that is broader than any individual, and that's then applied. Uh, and assuming for the purposes of argument that there are individual violations of 10B, why would that not be dealt with under section seven if you have both a systemic practice and an individual violation? Assuming that individuals did have their rights violated and had uh, you know, some link to the practice and therefore that they have standing. What's wrong with dealing I, with that under section seven?
7: Our submission is that the systemic nature of a violation is properly dealt with at the remedy stage. And one of the reasons why this court has indicated that the proper approach is to address a violation not under section 7 but under an enumerated ground it's not because section 7 isn't triggered but it's because the the more narrow enumerated ground offers a a more specific and complete illustration of the section 7 right in context and if you think about this this sort of i think stems from the practical realities of litigation it doesn't make a lot of sense to litigate a big complex section 8 issue under section seven we have a huge body of jurisprudence under section eight it's very extensive so there's a lot of value in bringing all of that jurisprudence and education to bear in litigating this under section eight and i think that confusion would only really be amplified um, if when you have sort of project cases additionally the sort of the the in terms of the the remedy stage addressing sort of the systemic issues that you see and the concerns that um, that systemic issues bring to bear on the administration of justice can appropriately be addressed, at, be addressed at the remedy stage. This is where we consider the seriousness of the violation, and you know whether it's systemic or or not. So I think we'd submit that the the mere fact that that something has a quality of systemicness does not in itself mean that it is we are automatically in abuse of um, abuse of territory conduct uh, territory with a similar thing i think we'd say with the cumulative impact of multiple charter breaches under under different sections it doesn't change the nature of the problem what it does is it it is most appropriately um addressed at the remedy stage
5: i i I only wish i only wish our jurisprudence was as clear as you have indicated to us that you believe that it is I have had counsel submit to me that uh, 8 to 14 are merely particular instances of 7, and therefore one can go directly to 7 and have, need have no regard to 8 to 14, and which of course makes the, the notion of something being residual nonsense, because then in that instance you can go straight to 7, because it is not in any sense residual or a safety net under the others, but is a more... Um, broad and general statement of which, which is then thereafter particularized in 8 to 14. So I commend you for the clarity of your submissions, and I trust our jurisprudence will be similarly clear.
7: Thank you very much. I have no further submissions.
0: All right, thank you very much. Uh, Maître François Henault.
2: Mr François Henault. Chief Justice, Justices, the case before us is an, an interesting opportunity for the court to reaffirm certain things to do with standing required under 24-1 of the Charter, and particularly in a case such as this. That is, where there, a remedy is sought, given to facts fact are applied differently to different cases. Regarding 24-1 of the Charter, first of all, we know that it must be interpreted purposively, which means in the most generous way possible, so that it is compatible with realizing its objective without exceeding its objective. And in the past years, we've seen that uh, identifying the objectives of the Charter must begin with analyzing its text. And this has been mentioned before, in this case, that section 24 is not unambiguous, is not ambiguous regarding who uh, it is available to. It is for anyone who is a victim of a violation of their uh, rights. And afterwards, it must be determined whether or not there was a violation against the individual, which means we have to look at the circumstances of the individual. This court has repeated that 24-1 is an entirely personal remedy and that anyone uh, resorting to it must have had personal violation of their own rights. What we wish to confirm today is anyone who wishes to seek a remedy under 24-1 must first show that their own rights were breached in a given situation and that individual must act alone in seeking the remedy in a criminal situation. In such a situation, it, would be, it is necessary to assess the evidence And whether the evidence truly makes it possible to find that each of the individuals uh, really did uh, suffer a breach of their rights and after that second step the appropriate and just remedy can be determined for each of the individuals. There's something else we wish to highlight because it has come up a number of times and that is The systemic nature of a problem and what its impact is. We say that even if a problem is characterized as systemic, that does not mean that it is not necessary to first determine if the parties who are invoking 24-1 of the Charter themselves were victim of the alleged breach. And I also believe that it's important not to forget an important point, that there must be a violation of a fundamental right or freedom as concerns and the demonstration of a violation means that it's important to check not only if there was a government conduct that was inappropriate, but also whether that conduct had a sufficient causal link with the alleged violation and the effect of the violation of rights. Mr. Eno, what is the importance of a finding of systemic nature if this same analysis is being made of the, of the system? What is the purpose of that? When the breach is a systemic, this is important in determining what the Uh, appropriate and just remedy is. We believe that if a problem is systemic, it can play a role in determining the appropriate remedy. Can it have an impact on the analysis of the impact of the breach under Section 7? We say that if so, it would be, for example, regarding a residual category of abusive process in a context where the systemic nature leads us to believe that the integrity of the justice system was truly undermined by police conduct. So here, yes. We say that it is important uh, on the determination of the remedy. Thank you.
3: Uh, Mika Renkin. Yes, um, good morning, or I should say, I think good afternoon now, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General of British Columbia has intervened in this appeal to address the question of standing under Section 24 of the Charter my submissions today will focus on some of the broader analytical questions that we submit arise from the judgments of the courts below. And as explained in our fact, and we argue that the trial judge's reasons in this case exemplify um, three emerging or developing trends in the abuse of uh, process jurisprudence, which we say are, are problematic for a variety of reasons. The first trends, trend that we identify as what we have termed the double-barreled charter claim and this refers to situations where an accused advances a conventional charter claim perhaps under sections uh, 8 or 9 or 10b or all of the above and also pleads that these violations cumulatively amount to an abusive process and in british columbia we've seen an increasing number of of cases where accused are pleading these kinds of claims Uh, these kinds of claims we see that these these double-barreled charter claims are misconceived for at least two reasons and and you've heard in part I think submissions from other interveners about this already but first we say uh, that one of the reasons why this is problematic is that reviewing courts should generally consider claims based on enumerated charter rights before considering section 7 and we submit that uh, this court's jurisprudence supports that um, with respect to the abuse, the residual category of the abuse of process doctrine, we would point as did uh, Maître Abran, to, uh, to paragraph 73 of the O'Connor decision, where, uh, where the court says that the residual category does not relate to impairing other procedural rights enumerated in the charter. And of course, there are many other cases where this court has, has uh, made that point. The second, uh, the second problem we say with this kind of double-barreled claim is that there's nothing to be gained from it. At least I'll come to address standing in, in a moment, but nothing legitimate to be gained from it. And the reason for that is that the same remedies are available under, uh, uh, with respect to the violation of any kind of rights. Systemic issues can be taken in, into account in evaluating an appropriate re- remedy under 24-1. Um, as uh, as you've heard already now in this case the trial judge appears to have concluded that section 7 was breached because of violations of section 8 and 10b what we submit should have occurred was that the trial judge's analysis should have stopped at the breaches of section 8 and section 10b and then he should have turned to the question of remedy that's the appropriate uh, analytical approach in I, our I'm submission. not so
5: sure about that i mean uh... I mean, aren't you allowed to plead in the alternative? Here are the facts. Here, here's what I'm pointing to, uh, says Defence counsel. My initial submission is that this is a breach of seven, eight, whatever, and in the alternative, it, 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 it is a breach of seven, which is, at least as I conceive it, a sort of safety net which, which sits behind the enumerated 8 to 14 protections and uh, provides an additional uh, possibility uh, for charter infringement and relief so i mean let them plead and if they've got a good case uh, i mean they deserve the remedy what what's wrong with pleading in the alternative
3: justice Rowe, i'm not complaining about the the framing of their Pleadings, what I'm suggesting is that where the breach is properly addressed under Section 8 or Section 10B, there's no no need to go on to consider Section 7. It offers nothing more than what is already provided by Section 7, particularly in circumstances uh, such as this case, where all that's really being alleged is a breach of Section 10B. In other words, Section 7 isn't doing anything more other than becoming a new vessel for the same type of allegation. But I'm, I'm going to so, I'm gonna,
5: I'm gonna ask you again. What if, and I'm not talking about the circumstances of this case, what if there's a problem which manifests itself in, in the circumstances of an accused, but defense becomes aware that this is a problem which, like, Hundreds and hundreds of other accused are facing. Does it not? Uh, is it not an additional factor that it is proper for the trial judge to consider that it's not that something went wrong this time; that something goes, something of this nature goes wrong every time.
3: I think it is a, in a, a factor that's appropriate, but it's not a factor that's appropriate for making up the breach in the first instance. In my submission, where, that, where there is a broader, there's evidence of broader systematic or systemic violations, then it ought to be taken into account in determining the appropriateness of a remedy under section 241, but not in establishing a breach based upon what uh, eventually ends up happening is that the breach is uh, a person asserting the availability of a remedy for the breach of other people's rights. If their individual rights are violated, then, yes, indeed, the fact that the conduct is more widespread is appropriate for consideration under 24 1, but not, as I say, uh, under the question of breach. But it goes to the nature is of the out. wrong,
8: surely. I mean, uh, to follow up on Justice Rose's point, which I think uh, merits uh, uh, r- response, um, you can envisage a situation where somebody's Section 10B violation doesn't, in and of itself, justify a stay. Uh, the remedy of a stay but if it 's part of a large and you have a spectrum one of these group prosecutions there's going to be a spectrum of section 10 b violations but maybe everybody 's entitled to a stay if this if it 's proven this is part of a systematic practice of police misconduct so then that that, that seems to change the character of the wrong it 's sim- not simply a matter of remedy it 's the nature of the wrong
3: well in in response my submission that the if that what What occurs in that type of situation if individuals are relying on section 7 is that they're avoiding the standing requirements of other charter rights in other words they're asserting or piggybacking as we put it in our argument on violations that have been uh, perpetrated against others if they themselves have uh, suffered a section 10b violation that doesn't appear to be grave enough individually to obtain a state then yes i say that they could look at other circumstances and suggest that involving other individuals and suggest that that's relevant to the determination of remedy. But my point is simply that it's not appropriate for them to rely on the breach of third party rights uh, using section seven to establish that a breach has occurred. Thank you. Um, Andrew Barr. Thank you.
0: Uh, Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. Um, Alberta intervened uh, also on the issue of standing Uh, In this case, and the angle that I've tried to take in approaching that question is to uh, consider the public interest and ask, uh, how does a potential expansion of the test for standing affect uh, policy questions? Um, Alberta's concern about this matter, I think, is the same as some of the other interveners, which is that a person whose rights were not infringed might still have standing to seek a remedy on the basis that somebody else's rights were infringed. And uh, our position is that the Quebec Court of Appeal correctly stated the test. And uh, my submission is that an expansion of the scope of standing in criminal cases is not in the public interest. And the framework that I try to approach this from is uh, to look at this court's recent decision in Council of Canadians with Disabilities, uh, which assesses the public interest test uh, for standing in civil cases and applying those factors as identified in that case and earlier jurisprudence, uh, I will, uh, in my time today, just make two simple points. Uh, First of all, uh, the objective of preserving judicial resources in civil cases takes on even greater importance in the criminal context in my submission. And I rely on all this court's decisions in Jordan, Cody, et cetera. it's essential that criminal trials can remain focused on resolving the charges before the court. And this court should not endorse a test where a criminal trial against a specific individual might become a hearing about some other state misconduct that did not affect the person who is before the court. Uh, the Quebec Court of Appeal articulated a clear test for standing and this court should not uh, depart from it. Uh, One of the lessons from the Council of Canadians case is that litigation about standing can balloon and take over uh, the entire case and delays like that in criminal trials are very much against the public interest. The second point is that uh, I submit the rationales that apply in civil cases to uh, expand standing have very little application in the criminal context. So the rationales are uh, first of all, the principle of legality, which is a bedrock principle of democratic society, that there must be a practical and effective way to challenge state actions in court. Uh, State actors are not above the law and uh, therefore their actions have to be challenged uh, or at least there has to be a means to do that. And the related principle, access to justice is that, There must be a practical and effective way for a person affected by state action to seek a remedy and my submission simply is that these principles are not well served by expanding any kind of standing in the criminal context first this is because uh, there's always the availability of a civil claim so there will never be a situation where denying a person standing in criminal court leaves no forum for them to advance their claim. Uh, Moreover, there are some important limitations to resolving uh, disputes about state action in the context of a criminal trial. Uh, One of those is the the, uh, right parties are not necessarily before the court. Many of these claims, including this case, it's really an allegation that the police officers or the police force violated the rights Uh, of the person and the police of course are not a party to the litigation. So one consequence of that is that um, the the case may not be fully argued with respect to the interests of the police officers or the reputation of the police officers who are alleged to have been engaged in wrongdoing. Uh, The other problem is that if a court decides the police officers did something wrong, uh, a criminal trial judge has limited jurisdiction to grant a remedy against those officers because they weren't parties. Um, Finally, part of the public interest as I understand it is the idea that there should be a public hearing so the public can know the truth about what happened and whether these state actors were involved in wrongdoing or not. And the problem with doing that in a criminal trial is that uh, one of the problems is that the Crown at any time may simply uh, stay the proceedings and end that inquiry so subject to any questions those are my submissions thank you
1: thank you very much Mr. Desjardins on reply just a few points first because Martel was filed in evidence at trial at tab B page 79 you'll see that at the court's invitation or request this was uh, entered as an exhibit in evidence so the Martel decision was on the record was filed in this case secondly on the finding of fact that there was a systemic violation uh, that uh, finding of fact that was not uh, subject to any palpable or overriding error paragraph 183 where the trial judge talks about uh, a police attitude and a systemic refusal to apply the Charter of Rights and Court decisions when it came to the exercise of the right to counsel. And there are other passages in the trial decision to the same effect. Another thing to draw a parallel between the methodology adopted in the Ontario Court of Appeal Decisions methodology uh, in the Thompson case in order to establish a, a, a systemic violation with where the practice it was the practice of a police force the same police force in more than one case and you'll find this in paragraph 70 of the Ontario Court of Appeal decisions where they cite the Trombley decision and the Freddie decision which cites uh, Freddie in paragraph uh, 41 they say, this is where the system's responsibility kicks in. All this 20 years after a number of other decisions which uh, bear on right to counsel. After a whole string of decisions from the Quebec court uh, where the police refused to allow an accused to use their cell phone and years after the Taylor decision. Another thing, I think it would be a very slippery slope to compromise the exercise of the right to counsel under 10b by using uh, a panacea by saying that the call might not have been confidential on the site. It's not up to the police. They don't have the constitutional right to contact a lawyer without delay. And 10b is quite clear on this. 10b says, The right to the assistance of a lawyer without delay and to be informed of that right. So the first part of 10B is the right without delay. Obviously, the accused can waive that right. Uh, The accused can accept. They can agree. The, the, the accused has a lifeline, but they could choose not to exercise that right to that lifeline in, from the patrol car. So it says, yeah, to retain and instruct counsel without delay and to be informed of that right. So you can't always use confidentiality as a shield to justify conduct that actually frustrates the right and and does not allow the right to counsel to be exercised until the accused is brought to the police station and here i think the respondents submissions are disconnected from the fact that the trial judge here found that the circumstances were not taken into account and if the circumstances allowing for access to counsel were not considered by the police, then this is a violation of the second part of 10b. As for the endorsement issue, the Court of Appeal did not rule on that issue, so it would be dangerous for this court to do so. We don't agree with the respondent on that, because Simon Indépendant bound the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal of Quebec found that the judges issuing the warrants, uh, that those warrants were effective throughout Quebec. And when it came to Group 1, the police officers, uh, the officers dealing with Group 1 did testify, but the other officers did not for Groups 2 to 4. Those are my submissions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Desjardins, and I'd like to thank all counsel for their arguments. The court will reserve judgment. Thank you very much. Good afternoon.